Hey guys, my name is Alan Peacock, pastor of the Awakening Church. We're located in Smithfield, North Carolina on Bookadary Road, right across from Triple S High School and the Aquatic Center. And I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you so much for visiting our site today. Not the champion, eighth place, but same difference. Well, good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing this morning? Um, before I begin, um, I do want to, to once again mention, you know, tomorrow's Memorial Day. Um, I'm, I'm going to tear up saying this now. Uh, you know, my dad was, was in the, the military, and um, a lot of my family has been. And, you know, it's interesting. Pastor was talking about people, you know, quitting their jobs and moving on. I actually just ended my job at Food Lion, a part-time job, because I graduated and I'm going to start a full-time position. And it being Memorial Day, I'm seeing all these people come up and they buy their Coronas and their hot dogs and then they're going to go have a Memorial Day celebration. And it really makes me wonder, what are we having a memorial of? Is it a memorial of, you know, the, the work day that we lost on Monday? Or is it a memorial of the people who gave their lives for us to be here right now? Um, I don't know, that, that just weighs heavy on me. Um, you know, you could, you could play taps right now and I'd cry. No reason. You could just play the song and I'd cry because it's so important that we remember what other people have done for us when we've done nothing for them. So today, after we get through that horribly dark note, (laughs) um, what I want to talk about today is something that the Lord's been putting on my heart for honestly over a year now, something that has been weighing on me and that he has been impressing on me over and over and over and over again in so many different ways. And it's been such an amazing lesson to learn because over time it's helped me realize that for the rest of my life, God has the power to do something amazing in my life that I didn't really get before. Today what we're going to talk about is wreckage. Namely, the wreckage of our past. I don't know about you guys, but I've got some wreckage in my past, and we'll get into that later. Some pretty serious wreckage. Stuff that on my own would still be a horrible, burning pile of rubble that's completely unredeemable. All of us are human, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. It says that in Romans. And oftentimes, our choices can leave us with nothing but wreckage. The thing is, though, God has other plans. It says in Jeremiah 29, 11, and we all know this verse, and it's funny. I told my mom I was going to use this verse, and she goes, well, you know, sometimes people misuse that verse about plans to prosper us, and she doesn't sound like that. But <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11 goes, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And what I think she was talking about is the fact that it doesn't say plans to make you happy plans to make you rich, plans to give you a good marriage and a good job and a nice car. It says to give you hope and a future. It doesn't say if that future is five years from now. It doesn't say if that hope is for something even in this life. God has plans for us to give us hope and a future in Christ. That can be in this life or in the next But the point here is, is that God has plans for us that don't just include today, they include our past. 
and God has plans to use the wreckage of our past to become our greatest strengths if we're willing to let him. God, I just pray this morning that you would till our hearts, Lord. Take the hard soil of the weak and make it soft. Prepare us for your Holy Spirit's reign, God. I pray that each and every one of us today would feel your presence tangibly in this room. Lord, that you would come and sit with us as our Heavenly Father, that you'd come down and wrap your arms around us and pick us up and say, I'm here, rest in me. In Jesus' name. So today, what we're going to be talking about is Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, and how Nehemiah went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you can see much the same story in the book before Nehemiah called Ezra. Ezra does the same thing, but with the temple. But today we're going to stick to Nehemiah. But before we begin, I want to talk about some preliminary points. This, the story of Nehemiah, occurs right after, or after, the Babylonians came and destroyed Israel and captured the Israelites. And this is detailed in Second Chronicles. The temple and the wall were destroyed, and the Israelites became refugees and slaves in a foreign land. The thing is, though, this was 100% the Israelites' doing. It says in Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. The Israelites brought this upon themselves. If you go back a few chapters in 2 Chronicles, it details generations and generations of Israelites and their kings constantly, one, spurning the prophets of the Lord, and two, going about their own way and forgetting God's commandments. And it's interesting, too, as I was studying this, I had always heard of the Babylonian enslavement, basically, the Babylonian captivity. So I thought in my head, the image was the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple and the walls, they destroy all of Israel, and they take the Israelites as slaves. But that's not what happened. In fact, if you read on into verses 17 through 20, it says, therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and all his princes... And I lost my place. All these he brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Here's the part. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped the sword. Let that sink in for a second. The Israelites in captivity didn't have all their friends and family with them. Their friends and family who weren't as lucky as them, were murdered. It was a mass genocide of the Israelite people, and only the ones who escaped were given the mercy of becoming slaves. We see that the Israelites have some pretty significant wreckage in their past, both literally in the wreckage of their city and metaphorically in the wreckage of their people. 
And I know for me, when I do something wrong, if I'm the only one affected, yeah, it hurts, but it's a little more bearable. When I do something wrong and it affects those around me, that's when it hurts. And how do you think the Israelites felt waking up every day in slavery knowing that their actions are the reasons that they're now a widow, an orphan, an only child? Pretty significant wreckage, if you ask me. But see, the cool thing is, we now move on to Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, we see the story of a man who decided that the wreckage of his past would not stay wreckage forever. So we're going to start off in Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm going to read all of Nehemiah chapter 1. It's a lot, I know, but bear with me, we'll, we'll deconstruct it. We're not going to do that with the whole book, but I do want to read this first chapter because every single line is important to what we're going to talk about today. You could call this first section building the foundation, the foundation being the most important part of any work. So, buckle up, here we go. Chapter one of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Quick side note at the end there when he says grant him mercy in the sight of this man, he's basically saying grant me mercy in the sight of the king because he's about to go and ask the king for permission to go restore the walls of Jerusalem. That was a lot. I know we're going to deconstruct it. So... If we go back to the beginning of verse 4, we see Nehemiah begins building a foundation upon which God can repair the wreckage of the Israelites' past. The first thing he does in verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first thing Nehemiah does is not ask the other Jews what they think they should do, or Israelites, I guess, at the time. 
is not draw up a building plan for how he's gonna recreate the walls. It's not begin gathering resources, because if we don't have enough money to do it, we can't do it in the first place. No, the first thing he does is pray and fast to become closer with God. Because if it's God as the foundation, then all that other stuff kind of falls into place. The second thing he does is he moves on to acknowledge God's nature. You know, sometimes we need to remind ourselves who God is. It's easy for me to forget that not only is God my, my friend and my comforter, but he's also the most great and terrible being in the entire universe, and then some. You know, Thomas and I are our wonderful worship pastor over there who I am dressed remarkably similar to and looking much better than. Um, we've been in ministry together for a long time, probably 11, 12 years. Um, and Thomas was originally uh, the youth pastor at a, at a church that we met at. And when getting youth to pray, uh, I think he came up against a little resistance, especially since, you know, when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, the only thing that matters is how you look in front of other people. So what we often did uh, was employed what we call the Acts prayer model. And it's four letters, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And that's a good way to structure your prayers. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer, when they ask Jesus, how should we pray? He roughly follows that model. The thing I want to point out from that, though, is we begin with adoration. We don't begin with confession. We don't begin by thanking him for what he's done. We don't even begin by asking for stuff. Imagine that. We begin by adoring the Lord for how wonderful and awesome he is. Nehemiah says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins in exaltation. If you're writing anything down, here's one for you to write down. We cannot come in expectation of God's actions without also coming in exaltation of his nature. Let me say that again for you. We can't come in expectation of God's actions without also coming in exaltation of his nature. God is the most perfect and holy being and he is surrounded by perfect holy beings that are praising him day and night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Don't you think we could maybe emulate that just a little bit? Instead of saying, hi, God, um, so what I need you to do today is I need a new job, I need more money, I need a new car, and um, also help my dog not be sick. It's probably a little safer to say, God, you're awesome. And you're, you're pretty cool. And you've done so much for me. And only you could do that. You know, it also probably doesn't hurt to tell him. I'm sure he doesn't mind it, hearing how awesome he is, because he deserves it. The next thing that Nehemiah does is he asks for the Lord to hear him. You know, as I was studying this, this concept of asking the Lord to listen was a little foreign to me. I'm so used to just coming before God, and there is something to be said for Jesus is our intercessor, and therefore we're always in communion with God. But just as much as God is my close friend... He is still the king of kings and lord of lords. And Nehemiah is coming with a pretty big request here. 
He wants to save the future of his people. And instead of saying, God, I need your help to do this, he first says, God, lend me your ear. Listen, Lord, please, I beg you. Humbling ourselves before the Lord can never go wrong. We have to come in exaltation if we wish to come in expectation. The next thing that we see is that it says he prays day and night. This is the back half of verse six. He says that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. God respects commitment. You know, Jesus says to us in the New Testament, you should be perfect as I am perfect. Obviously, we're humans, that's not possible. But what Jesus does in saying that is he sets a standard so high that no human being can get to a point and say, I'm done. You always have to be working harder and harder and harder to become more Christ-like because God respects commitment. Anyone who knows me well enough knows I love cooking, and so I had to throw a cooking analogy in here today. So bear with me. God isn't a pork chop you throw in the crock pot. He's a beautiful steak you cook in a cast iron skillet. It's not sacrilegious, I promise. God isn't a pork chop you throw in a crock pot one time with some spices and a can of cream of celery soup, turn it on and leave it for eight hours. I can't pray now, Lord, help me speak to my neighbor. All right, that one's done. Maybe from two years from now, it'll be, it'll be done. Two years from now, I'm still cooking on that one. Still, still hasn't come to pass. I prayed it that one time, it's, it's working. No, God is a beautifully cooked steak in a cast iron skillet, which I will fight any of you is the correct way to cook steak, not on the grill. <laughs> the way you cook steak in a cast iron skillet is you take your skillet, you oil it, you put the steak in and you put butter and spices and things like that. And then repeatedly, you baste the steak in the butter over and over and over and over and over. So that as you do this repeatedly, the flavor of the steak starts to enhance. Then you flip it and you do it on the other side. You can't leave that steak alone for 10 seconds. You have to constantly be tending to it. And if you tend to it enough, at the end, you'll have the best steak you've ever eaten, guaranteed. God's much the same way. Nehemiah prays day and night without ceasing, constantly beseeching the Lord praying to the Lord, humbling himself before the Lord because God respects those who are like him. And God being the most perfect and steadfast being never changes and thus is the single most committed being in all of existence. I wanna sit down after that. that was, I, don't know, I don't know if that was a good analogy to you guys, but I, I love that analogy. I love cooking, so. But I will fight you if you say grilling steak is better. It's not. Um, okay, moving on to verse seven, or excuse me, the back half of verse six, I guess. Nehemiah then confesses his sins. At the end of all of that, now he confesses his sins. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. One thing I want to point out here is he doesn't say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Okay, he points out the specific things that him and the Israelites have done against the Lord. If we simply say a blanket statement of, Lord, forgive me for my sins this week, what does it say to the Lord? 
Does it say to him, yeah, those things were bad, but they're not worth mentioning each one? Or do we treat our sins like each one is a lash on Jesus' back? Each one is a nail in his hands. You know, the Bible says that the, the sins are equal, and although it's human nature to think, yeah, killing someone's worse than, I don't know, eating too much pizza, um, which I'm super guilty of that one, um, we have to confess specifically. Because one, it humbles ourselves, it acknowledges our wrongdoing rather than just acknowledging our nature. Saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins is like saying, Lord, forgive me for being a human. But saying, Lord, forgive me for being disrespectful to my coworkers today. Forgive me for using your name in vain. That's no longer asking for forgiveness for being a guy. That's asking for forgiveness for being Sam, which God respects infinitely more. The rest of chapter one is Nehemiah basically quoting God's promises, which, in fact, believe it or not, is, is normally a, a pretty smart way to go with God. He made a lot, a lot of promises to us, and he's such a cool dude, he always keeps them. Uh, that's amazing to me. Um, the foundation that Nehemiah builds here is built on open, honest, and reverent communion with God. This is the foundation. None of the other stuff matters if your foundation isn't built upon open, honest, and reverent communion with God. So, we've built our foundation. Now we can move on to Nehemiah chapter 2 to begin the work. So as we look at chapter 2, we see that in the beginning, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king and moves on down and basically asks for what he came for. The thing I want to point out, though, here is that as Nehemiah had built his foundation upon which God is prepared to repair the wreckage of his past, what he doesn't do is drop everything and pursue his goal. He's still at work. He's the king's cupbearer. And you know what he does? He goes to work. He goes about his daily responsibilities. Because what God doesn't want us to do is say, oh, I'm called to Alaska to be a missionary. Um, family, bye. Job, bye. Everyone, bye. I'm gone. No. God expects us to do his work as we go. You know, the Great Commission often, said, often is said as, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, blah. The actual Greek word for go, though, is as you go. Not start here and go here, but as I'm going about my daily life, as I'm at work, as I'm, you know, with my family, as I'm at the doctor, as I'm doing everyday life, that's when I make disciples. And Nehemiah knew that even in the Old Testament because as he was performing his job, he enacted the plans of God. He also acknowledges fear. It says, the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And rightfully so. The king could have said, oh, you want to go rebuild your nation, the one that I captured? No, you're killed. You're starting a rebellion, I'm going to kill you. That's how it is. 
But more than that, he could have also just said, no, you're my cupbearer. I don't want you to leave. He was very fearful. But see, what Nehemiah knew is that his foundation wasn't built upon his ability. It was built on God's promise. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. God promised to him that if you keep my commandments, it says right here, not even just to Nehemiah, but to Moses, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. God promised it. And so in spite of his fear, he was able to go before the king and do what the Lord had asked him to do. The other thing to notice is that when the king says, what are you requesting? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, praise again. As I said to him, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, okay, how long will you be gone and when will you return? I like to think this could have gone two ways. The way it did go when the king said, how long will you be gone and when you will return? And Nehemiah gave his plan. And then the other way, when the king says, how long will you be gone and when you will return? And Nehemiah goes, I don't know. God told me to do it. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't think that would have gone as well. Because what Nehemiah realized is that, yes, God has promised to do a great work, but that does not mean we are excused from doing our work he realized that he had to have a plan in place to give an avenue for God's work in this world. Obviously, God could create that avenue all on his own. He could do this just by himself. He could snap his fingers and all of Israel's back together, but that's not how this was gonna go because God would rather create relationships with us through hardship and work than he would simply exert his will upon the earth because he cares more about us then he cares about the establishment of a nation. He also, in addition to having his plans for when he would go and when he would return, he was also ready to say, well, you know, I'm gonna have to go from here to here to get to Israel, so I need letters to the governors in between, and that's later on in chapter two. He says, I'll need letters to the governors of these provinces, and I'll also need a letter of permission to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so I can gather wood. Nehemiah had a plan. It relied on God's promise, yes. The foundation was God's promise, but that did not excuse him from his own work. Then in the next part of chapter two, we get to, we get to the hard stuff. And this is where we're gonna start to really hone in on wreckage. In the second half of Nehemiah chapter two, in my Bible, it's titled Nehemiah Inspects Jerusalem's walls. You know what that says to me? It says Nehemiah had to come face to face with his wreckage. That part hurts. A lot of times it's really easy for me to, let's say I mess something up. I just want to forget it and move on. It never happened. I'm just going to pretend it never happened. But no, Nehemiah had to walk himself up to the city and look up at the wreckage and the rubble, and the burned wood, and probably know my friend died right there by a king's soldier. My mother died back there, burned in a house that they set on fire that she couldn't escape from. 
He had to come face to face with the full force of the wreckage of the Israelites' past. In order for God to build upon the wreckage of our past, we have to acknowledge it. We can't simply act like it's not there. In order to repair the wreckage, we have to take stock of it first. That part's tough. I hate that part. I hate that part. In Nehemiah 2.17, it says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. In disgrace... Yes, the other nations around Jerusalem held the nation in contempt because they said, you, you weak nation, you were captured by another. Your young men and your elderly and your children were killed at the sword and everything you were proud of was burned to the ground. How pitiful of a nation are you? How weak is your God? How many times do we leave the wreckage in our past alone, ignoring it, so that other nations can look at us and say, how weak is your God? That's tough. Because that's what wreckage says. If we are truly living a life ruled by God, and we have wreckage in our past, then it says that my God can't fix that. But he can, and he will. And that's what we're going to see in chapters four and six. Chapter three, we're gonna skip over because it's just a long list of names and what they did. Someone repaired the dung gate and that's all you need to know. Um, we're gonna start moving a little faster now because now we're getting to the good part of the story. Story, well, I mean, I guess it's history, but. So in chapter four, for me, it's titled Opposition to the Work. Today, I'm gonna to call this Staying the Course. And in chapters four and six, we see a few new characters. One named Sanbalat, and the other named Tobiah. It says in the beginning of chapter four, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Sanballat and Tobiah begin by ridiculing the Jews for even trying. And it makes sense because to them, the God of Israel was weak and allowed his people to be destroyed. And then later on in chapter four, they decide, you know what? I don't like these guys. Let's go kill them. So they decide to attack the walls of Jerusalem. And here, Nehemiah makes a tough choice that we often have to make in our daily lives. Nehemiah has two options. One, because he hears about the attack. He says, one, I can either push on, ignoring the circumstances around me. And I can just say, you know what? God planned it. We're going to go. And no matter what happens, I don't care if we all die, we're going to try to build the wall. Or he can be reasonable with what God has given him much like in the parable of the talents, and do what he turns out doing. He takes half of the workforce and devotes them to defense of the wall. We must be willing to pump the brakes sometimes in order to maintain the work. 
If Nehemiah would have just gone full speed towards restoring the wall, they probably would have all died, or at least most of them. Instead, he says, you know what? God has trusted me with this work. He promised me that it would be done, but he didn't say I wouldn't have to slow down. He promised me with this, or trusted me with this, excuse me. And so I'm going to be faithful with what he's given me. I'm gonna cut the work in half, but I'm going to ensure that it keeps going. And Sanballat and Tobiah were foiled. And then in chapter six, they do something else. They hire a false prophet to come to Nehemiah and say, look, dude, they're coming for you. We should run because if we run, you won't die. But it's so, so cool what it says in chapter six. It says, from Nehemiah, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. God will show you what is of his plans and what is of the plans of men. But the only way he can do that is if you're willing to listen. And that's where we come back to our foundation. The foundation is open, honest, and reverent communion with God. You see, a lot of times, myself included, people complain, I just don't hear the voice of God anymore. It's because we're not listening. Because we're not in constant, open, and honest communion with the Lord. Nehemiah was praying day and night. So when the plans of men came up against him, he said, I see this as plans of men and not of the Lord. I can't stop the work the Lord has set me to just for you. And they were foiled. And it goes on to say in the bottom of chapter six, in verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, the nations all around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. How many of you guys know that a lot of times we can accomplish things in our own lives and other people will say, good job, man. That was a good thing you did. The Lord helped you out. And then there are other times where things happen in our lives that other people look and say, how'd you do that? That makes no sense. It's the other nations realizing that it was a work of God, not of men, but of God. The awesome thing about having wreckage in our past is it gives God a place to build his presence. It's not so that we can look good. It's not so the Israelites can look good. It's so that the nations around Israel will fall in their own esteem and say this truly is a work that the Lord has done. You know, I mentioned that God had been putting this on my heart for a while now. Oh, man, this part's tough. Um, there's a reason for that. A little over a year ago, uh, I'm sure some of you guys remember, I disappeared. This went completely missing for a couple months. That's because I got arrested. Cops bust into my college apartment, found all the drugs that I was selling and doing, 
and put me in an orange jumpsuit. They took my shoes, man. They took my shoes. I love shoes. They took my shoes. I was charged with three felonies, two misdemeanors. And you know what? I look back now, and it is the best thing that has happened to me, arguably in my entire life. All those charges dropped. Yeah, I got denied from a job. I'm closer to God, closer to my family. I got this little glow-in-the-dark thing on my keychain that says I've been clean for over a year. <laughs> but more importantly, other people looking at my life would say, dude, what the heck happened? Three felonies, two misdemeanors, kicked out of college, kicked out of your job, Sam can't fix that wreckage. I mean, come on, Thomas. I can't fix that. I'm incapable of it. Because you know what? I'm the one who caused it. But I know somebody who can and did. Because the moment, <laughs> the moment I found myself on a really uncomfortable cot, laying on a pillow of towels above my cellmate named Buggy, I realized there's one person who can repair my wreckage. Good. One person. And he's still the only person who can. He's the only reason I'm here. He's the only reason I have such a good relationship with my family. He's the only reason I'm back in this church. Because the foundation isn't me. The foundation isn't my actions or my thoughts it's God's promise. And God made a promise to me that he has plans for me to prosper and to give me a hope and a future. In that cell, in that really ugly orange jumpsuit, granted, Campbell's colors are orange, but it was not the good orange, I didn't feel like I had hope or a future. In fact, I was so scared that I had multiple panic attacks back to back to back, thinking my parents are going to hate me, everyone at church is going to hate me, my friends are all going to leave me, I'll never get a job. But God said, stop. I have a plan for you. Plans to prosper you and to give you hope in a future. We're all human. And human nature is to cause wreckage. It's what we do. We caused wreckage in the garden and we caused wreckage of the temple that was Jesus. But you know what he said? Destroy this temple. Cause the wreckage and I'll raise it up in three days. Only God has the power to do that. Not me. Not you. Hate to break it to you. But God. So as we close up today, I want to ask you, are you dealing with some wreckage? You struggling with it? Maybe you forgot about it. Maybe you pretended it didn't happen. I know I wanted to do that for a while. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody what happened. I wanted to just act like I was regular old me. But I wasn't because the wreckage in my life would tell the other nations that my God is weak. But today, because... I have a foundation built upon God and I'm still working on it. 
as the rebuilding of the walls is going on in me, the other nations say, how great, not are you, but is your God. To me, that's the point of wreckage in the first place. The point of the wreckage of Jesus was the redemption of us. So today, if you're struggling with some wreckage, if you forgot about it, maybe you wanted to pretend it didn't exist, or maybe you're in the process of rebuilding and you feel like people are opposing you and you're wondering, do I press on or maybe do I pump the brakes? Take heart. God's promise to us is to prosper us, not to make us happy, not to make us a million dollars, although that would be nice, Lord, but to give us hope and a future. God, we thank you so much for this morning, for a beautifully, oppressively hot day. But in this day, Lord, the sun came up. The sun came up, God came up on us today free and able to come to church and be in your presence, Lord. In spite of the wreckage of our past, in spite of our wrong deeds, your promise remains the same. God, give us back a hope and a future. Be with us, Lord, as we begin the work, as we build a foundation, and as we stay the course, Lord, be with us today in this day and be with us on this Memorial Day, Lord. I'm sure there's some wreckage that people have to deal with in that. Maybe not caused by their own hand, but it's wreckage of the past. Lord, take wreckage and build us our greatest strength. In Jesus, wonderful, beautiful, and holy.